Thanks. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the fourth beatitude of Matthew 5, verse 6. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, it has occurred to me I've been here 15 and a half years, and uh, when I was in Rome a week ago, uh, I was there with my wife, and we were vacationing, but also putting together a, a tour that I'm going to lead, and I, I got to thinking, man, after 15 and a half years, I need an upgrade, so I, I've brought a few slides for you. I think I could preach a lot better up there, uh, and the altar needs a little work as well, so give me another altar here. Yeah, that would do it for me. And I'm thinking, I know we just did the building, but some of the halls, we could have a little bit more artistic work. Uh, that, might, that might spruce things up as well. And I'm preaching on humility this morning. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, how good it is to be in the house of the Lord. How good it is to open your inspired and errant word. Father, we desperately need a word from you. And we ask that you would allow the ancient words to impact our lives, to change us, to transform us, not to check a box in our life off, but to be impacted by truth, your truth. We ask, Father, that as we look at the fourth beatitude, that we would be impacted by truth. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. His name is Aaron Judge. If you're familiar with baseball, you probably know Aaron Judge. He's one of the reasons that people are speaking of the Yankees again. Aaron Judge was a rookie this year. He was the first major leaguer to hit 13 home runs in his first 25 games. He fills the doorway when he walks through it. He's six foot seven, 280 pounds. Nobody would be mentioning his name if he were a lousy player, but in fact, he's pretty good. He hit a ball so hard that when it crossed the outfield fence, it was moving at the most rapid rate ever recorded this year, or in history, 121 miles per hour. Don't catch that bad boy, that'll hurt. He hit several home runs over 500 feet long. As a rookie, he batted 284, pretty good. Hit 52 home runs, first in the league. He had uh, 114 RBIs, second in the league. He scored 128 runs, first in the league. He had a slugging percentage of 627, first in the league. He had an on-base percentage of 422, second in the league. He walked a record 128 times. He was on base 287 times, both first in the league. He had a war of 8.1 wins against him playing that position. 
He's not only offensively superior, he's defensively superior as well. But when people talk about Aaron Judge, they don't only talk about his ability to play baseball, they talk about his character. When Perez was speaking on Major League Baseball radio, he said, when I met Judge, the words that came through my mind were humility, grace, and kindness. His former manager, Joe, said, when you think of Aaron Judge, you think of one of the great Yankees, Derek Jeter, always a smile on his face, always hustling, and you know that he's going to do the right thing, whether on the field or off the field. When you think about his character, think about his Twitter feed. If you go on to his Twitter feed, the first four words, five words, actually read as following. Christian, faith, family, then baseball. That's what he's written. If you go on to his Twitter feed and look at Easter, he says, happy Easter to you. He is risen. When he talks about his family, he said, I have a debt to pay to my parents that I can never pay. They've done more for me than I could ever do for them. He was adopted by his parents on the second day of living. He said, my parents, I feel like they chose me. God put us together. When I think about Aaron Judge, I think this is the reason people are talking about my beloved Yankees again. I originally put on a Yankee shirt this morning, but I thought, all right, that's a little overkill. I figured, though, when I was talking about the Yankees, the Hallelujah Chorus would break out America's team. But as I think about Aaron Judge, I think about a man who pursues righteousness. 25 years old, he pursues righteousness. Today's text, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. We are called to hunger. We are called to thirst for righteousness. Now, if you're like me, you probably know very little about hunger. You probably know very little about thirst. Most of us who have lived in America our entire lives know little about it. Maybe when we fasted for a few days, we have pangs of hunger. Maybe when we go out on a hike and we've not brought enough water with us, we know a little bit about what it means to be parched, a little bit about what it means to be thirsty. It means to hanker after, to hunger after, to long for, to desire, to have a focus on something that you need, that you want. And God says, what I need, what I should want, is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the way in which I, in which you will be satisfied. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a bit intimidated when I read that word righteousness, the Greek word diakosune, it's a bit intimidating to me. And so I want to unpack righteousness for a moment Many of you probably know the word righteousness, dikaiosune, is used in more than one way in Scripture. One way that we're fairly familiar with 
is the righteousness that we receive from Christ. It's called imputed righteousness. Now, I rather doubt this morning at the breakfast table you were talking about imputed righteousness. Honey, pass the butter. And by the way, what do you think about imputed righteousness? Probably didn't happen this morning. But we know what imputed righteousness is, even if we're unfamiliar with the phrase. Imputed righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, the God-man, the one who took on human flesh while retaining full deity, who lived a perfect life and then went to the cross as a payment of sin for the wages of sin is death. He died as a payment of our sin. He rose again as the first fruits of resurrection that if by faith we would believe in Christ, his righteousness would be given, would be imputed to us, and our sin would be placed on Christ on the cross. We so desperately need imputed righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a righteousness we read about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. I love this passage. It says this. And be found in him, be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That is, not having a righteousness by trying to earn it, by trying to do, by trying to obey, by trying to have the good works outweigh the bad. That's not the righteousness of this text. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's the imputed righteousness. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the first righteousness, but it's not the righteousness of the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is not imputed righteousness. That text is talking about the righteousness that comes when you and I respond by faith to the Lord and then His Holy Spirit comes into our life and we begin to strive after Christ. Think of the reasons Christ died. There are many. We could say Christ died out of obedience to the Father. It's absolutely true. So we read Jesus saying in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me. But yet not my will, but thy will be done. One of the reasons Jesus died is to be an example of obedience. He obeyed the Father. A second reason is the imputed righteousness, the necessity of someone to die as the penalty of our sin. Jesus willingly died that we, through faith in him, might live. A third reason Jesus died is to give us a model of righteousness, to, to call us to righteousness. First Peter puts it this way. First Peter 2, the 24th verse. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, or so that, the, the result that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. One of the reasons Jesus died is to call us not only to salvation, but then the lives of righteousness. And the scriptures tell us in the fourth beatitude that fulfillment in our life is largely dependent on lives of righteousness. We're always pursuing fulfillment. God says, 
the most fulfilling life is a life that pursues Christ. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be satisfied. As I think of somebody who lived a righteous life, I think of John the Baptist. You remember in Luke chapter 7, the 24th verse, Jesus said this, Verily I say unto you, of those born of women, none are greater than John. John was and probably still is, outside of Christ, the most godly individual that has ever had human flesh. He pursued righteousness. He hungered. He thirsted after righteousness. As I think of John, I think of this passage. I want to read it. John chapter 3, 22 to 30. It'll give us a glimpse of what John the Baptist was like. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, very south, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, that is Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In other words, John, do something about Jesus. Jesus is on our territory. Jesus is speaking to our people. Jesus is gathering bigger crowds. Do something, Jesus. We're losing the crowds. It's not fair. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, I came to prepare the way of the Lord and then to get out of the way. That's why I came. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Let's kind of set the stage. At the beginning of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, the first 18 months, we might say, he stayed up north. He stayed in Nazareth and predominantly in Capernaum. He preached up north. That was the territory in which Jesus is working, in which Jesus is teaching. Meanwhile, John is way down south, 100 miles down south, towards the bottom of the Jordan, just prior to the Jordan going into the Dead Sea. And that's where John is preaching. We got mega churches in both sections. But suddenly, Jesus changes location. He comes down to John's turf. John's backyard, John's glowing star is suddenly falling. John's been the man. John's been the boy. He has been the gospel preacher. He's been the gospel sheriff in town. And suddenly Jesus shows up. And John's disciples are discouraged. They're despondent because people are leaving John to go and hear Jesus. 
to go and see the miracles of Jesus, to hear the teachings of Jesus, to be around the Messiah. And John, who used to be able to fill the room, can no longer. Now let's remember who John is. John has never taken a back seat to anyone. John didn't go after the limelight, but John had it. You remember in Luke chapter 1, 13 to 17, that the birth of John is announced by an angel? You remember that his father, Zacharias, and mother, Elizabeth, were beyond childbearing years? And yet, because of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, she conceives, even though it's physically impossible. And that was announced by an angel. I mean, I love it when I get those postcards. And it says that a baby has been born. I love that. But it's just a postcard. And I, I probably don't keep all of them. Maybe none of them. But imagine if your baby was announced by an angel. And you remember in Luke chapter 144, it tells us that while John was in the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, outside of Christ, who can say that? The Holy Spirit comes into our life, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, as a down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. When we accept Christ, if we accept Christ, then the Holy Spirit indwells us, not before and not until. John had the Holy Spirit in him while he was still in the womb. You remember Mark chapter 1, verse 5? He's down in the Judean desert. He is in the middle of nowhere. And if the Galilee, you've been up there, it's beautiful. It's farmland. You go down by the Dead Sea, it's desert. It's desolate. It's death. That's where he is. And yet it says the entire Judean countryside, that's what Mark 1.5 says, the entire Judean countryside comes down to hear John preach and to be baptized by John. If that phrase, the entire Judean countryside, only means one-third of the people, obviously it means much more than that, but if it only means one-third of the people, that means that one-third of a million people are coming to hear John preach and to be baptized by John. That's pretty heady stuff. No wonder when a debate breaks out on who John is, some say, you know what, I think he might be the Messiah. Others say, no, 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 he's Elijah come down from heaven. This guy is big stuff. He's been the gospel sheriff for a long time down south. And suddenly Jesus comes a hundred miles down to John's backyard, to John's turf. And John's losing the populace. He's losing the people. It's getting thin. And his disciples come and say, hey, you got to do something about Jesus. Maybe you've been there. Maybe. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you were in a ministry, and the ministry was going really well, but, but somebody older or, or somebody younger or somebody your own age came into the church, and, and they can do it a little bit better. 
And there's some bitterness that wells up in one's heart. And some anger and some territorial, hey, this is my area. Maybe it's somebody who sings on the worship team. It happened to me like 25 years ago. Ticked me off. I'm preaching in Texas. Planting a church, 30 people. And they don't want me to sing. How dare they? Or maybe it's a better Bible teacher and you've been teaching a life group or an ABF or in women of real devotion or men's Bible study and, and you used to have a big crowd and, and suddenly you're looking out and the only three people there you're related to and everyone else is in the room next door and, and it's hard not to get a little angry. Or maybe you're on a committee or you've been the leader in an area and somebody more competent comes along and do you, do you stand back and say, Lord, I bless you to bless them to lead and I'm going to be their assistant. That's John. John says they must increase, that is Christ must increase, I must decrease. I love what he says in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What he's saying is this. God is sovereign. And while we may be able to garner big crowds, if we want transformation, God does that. Oh, we might be able to get the crowds on our own, but it's God that does the transformation. If real transformation work needs to be done or is done, God is responsible. And so if God chooses sovereignly to use this person more than this person, then we've got to say, Praise the Lord, blessed be your name. That's what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's what it means to be satisfied. It's to understand that, that it's a miracle God uses us at all. And when he does use us, we bless him and we praise him and we thank him. That's what John is like. John recognizes that we need to work on the giftedness God gives us. We could listen to this and say, you know what? If only God does the spiritual work, then, then I don't need to develop in my spiritual giftedness. In fact, I don't even need to use my spiritual giftedness, except God commands otherwise. If your gift is teaching, be around better teachers. If your gift is evangelism, if you're one of the go and connect, grow, go, be around the best evangelists. If your gift is service and helps and hospitality and the connect part, be around individuals who connect better, learn from them and polish and sharpen the gift. If it's teaching, be around those who help grow the body. The connect, grow, go part of, of our commission. Whatever part we play, we need to sharpen those gifts, even though ultimately God is the one who brings the fruit. Yet he uses us and he commands us to be used by him. I love the example of John. He must increase. I must decrease. 
John gets overshadowed by Christ and he says, my joy is complete. I'm around the bridegroom. I get to watch what Jesus is doing. I get to be a part of that. That's righteousness. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And John was satisfied. As I think of somebody like that, I think of F.B. Meyer. That may not be a name that's very familiar to us. He was a preacher in London. He was born around, well, 1850 and died around 1930. He preached at a time in which Spurgeon had a pulpit not far away. If you know anything about Spurgeon, you know he's probably the most celebrated preacher of the last 300 years in England. And so every Sunday, I kid you not, Every Sunday, F.B. Meyer, a scholar in his own right, would stand on the steps of the church and he would watch thousands of people walk by to to Charles Spurgeon's church. 5,000 in the morning, 5,000 in the evening. That's how many came to hear Spurgeon preach. And if you got up late and you got to Spurgeon's church and there was no seat... You came back kind of sad to F.B. Meyer's church. He had to start about 20 minutes after Spurgeon started because he had no congregation until all those who had missed out on Charles Spurgeon had nowhere to go and they came to his church. That was F.B. Meyer's life preaching. And finally, finally Spurgeon was done preaching. And finally, F.B. Meyer could have his own congregation, and that's when God raised up G. Campbell Morgan. Just down the street. And he would watch thousands walk by. And he would have to start 20 minutes late until those who couldn't get in G. Campbell Morgan's church would come back and fill the, the seats for him to preach. And it was towards the end of his life that F.B. Meyer was heard saying to a crowd, why are you here? Did you hear G. Campbell Morgan's sermon this morning? The man is anointed by God. Go and listen to G. Campbell Morgan. That's a man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That's a man who says he must increase, I must decrease. That's a man who yearns for the kingdom to grow. As I think of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I have three concluding thoughts. First, when you and I truly hunger and thirst after righteousness, sin becomes a bigger and bigger deal in our lives. When we first came to Christ... We might have worked on a couple external sins. It's probably what we did. Maybe I'll swear a little bit less. Maybe, you know, not so many off-color jokes. Uh, Maybe I'll be a little more honest at work. And we work on a couple external sins. But the longer you and I walk with the Lord, the more we're concerned with the internal sins. Pride and arrogance, and lust, and hatred, and jealousy, and spite. 
Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Disdain the sin in our lives more and more. And we have a growing disdain for that sin. I suspect that that's true for many of you. We're blessed with many senior saints that attend Highland who have been walking with Jesus for, for decades. And I can only imagine the depth of your walk with Jesus. May those in our middle age and those in our younger desire that kind of hunger, that kind of thirst for righteousness. The second thing I think of for hungering and thirsting after righteousness is this desire to know Jesus more. We're no longer satisfied with just a little of Jesus. We need him more and more and more and more. We're no longer satisfied to, to come to church once a month or twice a month or, or once a quarter. We need him more. We need to be in a Bible study, whether a life growth group or a small group. We need devotions. We need prayer. We have a greater hunger for Jesus. We don't allow work and recreation and sports and arts and our activities to get in the way. We have a greater and greater desire. We hunger and we thirst after righteousness, and that's the way we're satisfied. And so many of you live that out. So very, very well. Thank you for your model. The final thing I think of when I think of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that it's an acquired taste. It's an acquired taste. It's kind of like coffee. Probably if you love coffee, the first time you tasted it, you didn't. It was probably bitter, but... As you began to drink of it, you became more of a connoisseur, which is a nice way of saying coffee addict. And for us connoisseurs of coffee, we can't get enough. We get up and, and we want a cup of coffee. One dear brother uh, walked into church with two this morning. Next week after this sermon, he's coming with three. You know what I mean? A little caffeine is good. We become connoisseurs over time. It's an acquired taste. When you and I first prayed to receive Christ, if in fact we have prayed to receive Christ as Savior, we were infants. We hadn't grown in our acquired taste for Jesus. But in that process of sanctification that begins at conversion and doesn't end until glorification when we go home, during that process, we should want more and more and more of Jesus. And it's an acquired taste. You say, I don't really do prayer very well. Well, we've got to work at prayer. And we start by saying, I'm going to pray for, for three minutes. And then maybe a month later, five minutes a day. And then a month later, maybe it's ten minutes it's an acquired thing, and pretty soon we discover that we're satisfied the more we pray. That's true in the Bible. We first start reading the Bible, and we don't understand any of it, right? 
To this day, I still have a study Bible. I have one up here. I have one on my desk. I have one at home. Because I read something, I don't understand it. I'm getting some help. It's an acquired taste as I read and I read and I study. And and God begins to open my mind. And I see more and more of the richness of the Word. It's an acquired taste. So if we want to hunger and we want to thirst after righteousness, we've got to jump in and commit some time to prayer and to be in the Word and to be corporately gathered and to be in Bible study. And we will be satisfied. I close with one question for myself and and for you. What are we going to do this week this week to grow in hungering and thirsting after righteousness? What's going to be different this week in yearning after God in your life and in mine? Let's pray. Father God, uh, it's so easy to talk about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but it's a lot harder to do it Help us to grow in this area, to be like a John the Baptist or an F.B. Meyer, to be like one who says, you, Christ, must increase, I must decrease. To grow in the giftedness that you have entrusted to us and yet to hold the positions that we have loosely, blessing you to bring somebody else to raise up others to do what we could do and then to allow us to be an assistant, an encourager, supporter. Father, help us to hunger and thirst. Help me to hunger and thirst for righteousness that we might be satisfied in you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.